0: Good afternoon, just in case you're in the wrong room, uh, this is leading prophetically and so take your whispers with you, go for it. Um, well, thank you, thank you for coming, I, I, I feel like an absolute uh, learner in this and so I'm talking with L plates on and uh, it's just important that we... Whilst we're sort of sharing stories and talking and learning, we this is who's actually got got a story to tell of being able to say they can nail it every time and and be led perfectly. But it's a it's a beautiful thing to be in relationship with God and to follow Him. And I think that erring sense of trying to remain close to Him and follow Him is really the essence of what we're talking about today um, in the day to day. And so. Somewhere between um, opposition, self-doubt, the unknowns of life and change, I think many leaders freeze. And we are talking about leading prophetically today. Um, this isn't going to be a prophetic training session of how to hear from God or how to prophesy. It's more about how we stay in step with God in the leading of the everyday of what it is to do what God has asked you to do with that ministry, with that, uh, that group of people, whether it's a church. And so I do think that many of us get frozen because of those oppositions, doubts, unknowns and changes. And so just for us to be wrestling with this idea of how do you know which risks are worth taking? Because when you lead, and you lead into the things that have been said multiple times already we are being asked to do impossible things. <laughs> we are being asked to do things that aren't within our power to affect the change in the outcome. So we're doing things that are already beyond us. How do we know which risks are worth taking? When do you know what to do when you're faced with opposition? How do you develop strength to keep pushing on? And I think I would just love for us to take some time to uh, together, look at what it is to create that right environment within our ministries, within the groups and the areas in which we lead, whether it's a church or a small group or whether you feel like you're leading in the marketplace, but a sense of creating the right environment for us to hear God's voice and have the courage to do as he commands so that we have the faith to break the line. And I think that's the, the kind of image that I would love for us to look at as we go into and press into the story of Jonathan and the Armour Bearer. If you want to open up at 1 Samuel 13, verse 16 onwards, uh, we're going to read together in a bit. But it's a recognition of what it is to break the line to see God's kingdom advance for God's glory and the good of humanity. And as people that follow God, there are moments and times when we really absolutely must be In tune with the Spirit of God and enter into spaces that we don't really know where it's going to land. There is no necessary guaranteed outcome of success, but we follow Him into that space regardless. And so, God desires and the world needs vibrant Christians and vibrant churches. Like, God desires that and the world needs it. That know how to hear His voice with great clarity and act accordingly. And we are convinced by the God has revealed in the Scriptures that the life of Jesus, that He lived, and the pain and the evil that we see around us, that that God wants us to live within in line with His creative mandate, which is to fill and subdue the earth and fill it with and bring His glory. That the need is great and urgent, and that He wants to partner with you. And so, we're to li- live in line with His creative mandate. The need is urgent, and God wants to partner with you in that restoration plan. And so, the need is great. We're in a world where the need is great. It's felt more keenly and acutely than ever, it seems, right now. And the urgent is mission. Uh, The mission is urgent. He needs us to step into that space. He wants us to enter into that, to take ground... And the only way that we're going to take ground and have the sustainable strength to see it through to the end is to stay close to him. It's to stay close, to draw close to Jesus, to stay close to him. Because ultimately, this is a relationship of love. This is a relationship of submission. And being empowered and led by him through his Holy Spirit is what we need to have the faith and the courage and the strength to take the risks that he asks us to take. And so that's where we're going to be Uh, this this afternoon. And so the plain reality is this. In the church, there shouldn't be anything other than leading prophetically. There shouldn't be anything else other than following the voice of God and into the places he's telling us to go. This is Jesus' church, Jesus' mission, And we are kidding ourselves if we think we can lead any other way other than being in a constant dialogue with God and still have the audacity to call ourselves Christian leaders. We have to be in step with him. We have to be doing it. There is no being open to being led by God. As Christian leaders, there is no being open to it. I'm really open to him giving me some advice and some direction. Please don't. Don't do that. That is not a possibility. You cannot call yourself a Christian leader and say you're open. You we are in a there's a divine hierarchy. Okay? God is absolutely divine and supreme and we know that we are not. And that we are to line up with his will and do as he commands by his power. And so there's a beautiful hierarchy which is good and right and true, that we do what we are told. Now, I try and tell my children to do that all the time. That's not always the case, but the simple reality, God wants to live this vibrant relationship of dialogue and obedience. So when I talk about leading prophetically and living prophetically, it's about intimacy. It's about closeness. It's about listening. It's about hearing. It's about doing. It requires us to listen and obey His commands, knowing it's for His glory and our good. So just before we press into the, to the scriptures, and we just see some of this come alive. I just want to set the scene almost, really. This idea of leading prophetically, and almost just to agree the terms, the sense of what is leadership and what is the prophetic. I think leadership has two things before we dive in. Leadership has vision. See, it's critical for leadership that you have vision, because unless you have a clear vision of where you know God wants to take your job, your ministry, your your small group, your church, it's unlikely anyone will line up to follow you. And a vision is a clear picture of the preferred future that God has set out for this. It's where God wants your church or ministry to be in one year, three years, five years. And leaders without vision are not equipped to inspire their people towards a passionate engagement to become more than the sum of our parts. When we line up behind God's vision... We, we find unity and power and we become more than just us on our own. The vision, when compelling enough, means that we put aside the distractions and our pet theologies and our pet things and say we're going to rally around this one thing and we're going to make the gospel the main thing. Regardless of how difficult it is, we're going to bring the gospel to bear here. And so vision is really important because it separates leaders from managers Leaders clarify vision, managers track it, they execute. Leaders use vision to inspire, managers use vision to track. And without a vision, there's no destination, and without a strategy, there's no path. And we do need both, but leaders need vision. And in my experience, too many of us don't really know our mandate our reason, our existence for what it is that we're being asked to do. And subsequently, we can wander. And those that are apparently trying to follow us are wandering with us. And so it's really important that we know what it is that we are being called to. So just whilst you've got your notebooks and your pens, why don't you just take a moment to just think, what is the vision of your church or your ministry or your area of responsibility? The thing that you would go to Jesus over and pray, God, do this. What is the almost the unique reason that that thing exists? Is it your church, why is it there? Your life group, what is it there for? That ministry, what is it there for? What, are you, what is God saying to you, saying, I want to see this achieved? Take a take a minute to just pause on that, think, write it down even. You might want to reflect on it later, tune it up. So the second thing, if the first is vision, leadership has vision, I think the second is leadership is life-giving. That PowerPoint uh, is useless for you lot because <laughs> the editing means it's mostly off the page and I'm standing in front of it. But if you wanted the notes for this, um, I can give them to be sent out later. But leadership is life-giving. When we consider the effect of humble, healthy, Christ-like leadership, what should that be? There are a few better places to turn than 2 Samuel 23, verses 3 to 4, where King David utters his last words and says, When one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of the morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. The Experience should be life-giving when you are led by someone like that. Like rain in an arid land or sun after a long, dark, cold night. It enables us to go further for longer because of the godly, humble, secure leadership that rightly fears God and serves righteously. The effect of leadership should be life-giving. That people should thrive. Human flourishing, I believe, is the litmus test of righteous leadership. When we lead well, it should be like he describes. So that's leadership. What about the prophetic? I'll pause for questions in a second. Scripture tells us that prophecy reveals to us what Jesus sees and also shows us how he sees something. And Paul told the Corinthians, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, their encouragement, and their consolation. That's 1 Corinthians 14.3. This shows us the heart of God. What he says to people is for the purpose of strengthening them. We can see that prophecy reveals to us the heart and the mind of God what he thinks what he feels and in essence gives us a threefold purpose of the prophetic firstly that word translated up building is a word meaning building or a construction or a physical edifice it is derived from two words the first meaning house and the second meaning house top And the image suggested is adding to a house or by building an extension or increasing the capacity by raising the roof. One goal of prophecy is to speak words of life and hope that build up and increase the hearer's spiritual strength and size. So it builds people up. Prophecy does that. It encourages. It builds up. So secondly, it is encouragement. Paraklesis is the Greek word there at its root. It includes the concepts of coming alongside and walking with, calling someone by their name, and putting these two ideas together. It encourages another to recognize who someone truly is. Walking with them, calling them by their name, rooting them in their true identity, reminding them of who they are, who they're meant to be. And interestingly, it's one of the key roles of the Holy Spirit He's called this paraclesis, this helper in John 14, 15 and 16. And encouragement is a huge deal in the kingdom of God because it's at the root of prophecy and it's a function of the Holy Spirit. So it's really important that we build up, that we encourage. And then thirdly, consolation. This Paramuthia comes from a word containing the concepts of coming alongside, speaking words of comfort and calm. It suggests elements of tenderness and support, like someone who runs alongside a flagging marathon runner to reassure, bring water, and bring hope to keep on going. That's what it brings. It brings life. And so this threefold function of prophecy, firstly, should strengthen, secondly, should encourage, and thirdly, comfort. And this combination of vision that brings life, that is coupled with the prophetic, this (coughs) prophetic leading, enables us to have faith to break the line. So in a moment, we'll look at the scriptures together and see the, the importance of this lived out in the story of uh, Jonathan the Armour Bearer. But just before we go ahead, any questions? No? Well, I'll press on, but feel free to ask questions as we go along. We will take moments to just start. We'll probably turn to each other. We'll ask questions of each other as well. There'll be moments to sort of digest along the way, but feel free to ask questions. So let's look at this passage together. We're going to read Samuel. I'll read it for you, and um, but you can follow along. So, First Samuel thirteen, verse sixteen, it says, "Saul, his son Jonathan, and the people who were with him were staying at Gaber in Benjamin, while the Philistines camped in Micmash. Three raiding parties left the Philistine camp, and one took the road to Oprah toward the territory of Shal. Another took the road to Beth Haran, and the last took the border road that overlooks Zeboin Valley toward the desert. No metal worker was to be found anywhere in Israelite territory because the Philistines had said, the Hebrews must not make swords or spears. So every Israelite had gone down to the Philistines to sharpen their plowshares mattocks, axes, and sickles, and the cost was two-thirds of a shekel for plowshares and mattocks, and one-third for sharpening axes and for goat, uh, for goads, setting goads. And so on the day of the battle, no swords or spears were found in the possession of any of the troops with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Now a group of Philistine soldiers had marched out to the pass at Michmash, and one day Jonathan's Saul's son, said to his young armor bearer, come on, let's go over to the Philistine fort on the opposite side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was sitting on the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree of Migron. He had about 600 men with him, including Hijah, the son of Ahitub, who was Ichabod's brother, and the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, who was the Lord's priest at Shiloh. He was wearing a priestly vest, and none of the troops knew that Jonathan had gone. There were two stone outcrops in the past where Jonathan planned on crossing over to the Philistine fort, one on each side, and one of these was named Bozes, and the other Senna. One outcrop was on the north side in front of Michmash, and the other was on the south side in front of Geba. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come on, let's go over to the fort of these uncircumcised men. Maybe the Lord will act on our behalf. After all, nothing can stop the Lord from saving, whether there are many soldiers or few. Go ahead with whatever you were planning, his armour-bearer replied. I'm with you, whatever you decide. All right then, Jonathan said, we'll go over to the men and show ourselves. If they say to us, stay here until we get to you, then we'll stay where we are. And we won't go up to them. But if they say, come on up, then we'll go on up because this will be a sign that the Lord has handed them over to us. So they showed themselves to the Philistines at the fort. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes they've been hiding in. Then the troops in the fort yelled to Jonathan and his armor-bearer, come on up, we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, follow me, because the Lord has handed them over to Israel. So Jonathan scrambled up on his hands and feet with his armor-bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan. His armor-bearer coming behind him would finish them off. In the first attack, Jonathan And his armour-bearer killed about 20 men in an area of about half an acre. And panic broke out in the camp, in the field, amongst the troops. Even those in the fort and the raiders shook with fear. The very ground shook. It was a terror from God. We get this very dynamic and emerging story here of someone getting a sense of maybe I should do something. And we see it develop into something quite remarkable. There was faith to break the line. And I think if, as we look at this, I think there are three important things that we see within this story that I think make up an important elements with regards to what it means to lead prophetically. We'll see the importance of vision, culture, and being in step with the Spirit. See, I think with Jonathan, the first thing was he was compelled by a vision. He was compelled by a vision, and faith rose in him to act. He looked upon the situation that Israel were in. They were occupied by the Philistine people, they were under oppression. They were, as it said, not able to own weapons. They were allowed to work the ground, but they weren't allowed to have weapons because they were oppressed. They were charged an inordinate amount even to sharpen their, their, their uh, tools. It says in verse 13, verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 22, So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword and a spear in his hand. Only they had them. There was no weapons in Israel. They were literally outgunned. Numerically and technologically, they were outnumbered and outgunned. What we recognize from that moment is Israel... It's living far from its purposes and destiny. It was meant to be a light to the world. It was meant to be a beautiful edifice, a a shining light of what humanity can be in relationship to God as an invitation to the nations around them. And here they are, oppressed under the thumb. There is something that is wrong, and Jonathan gets it. He recognises that something is wrong. He's compelled by a different vision. He's compelled by a sense that this isn't right and it needs to be changed. In verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. See, Jonathan, he believed the need was great. that couldn't remain that Israel remained oppressed like this. Israel should have been a free nation governed by God, living out a beautiful existence as a model of God's wisdom and invitation. But it's not how it's meant to be. The the way it was right there, it was not how it was. Jonathan believed that the need was great, that God wasn't happy or satisfied with the situation, and God wanted to partner with him for the breakthrough. Verse 2, Saul was sitting under the on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron with about 600 men. Saul should not be sitting under a pomegranate tree (laughs) with 600 men when they were about to go to war. This passage is laying in again and again and again that this is not okay, this is not right, this is not how it should be, this is not leadership as it is meant to be. There was no courage or holiness in the people of God that was meant to be leading it. And compelled by a vision of God and his glory, Jonathan is inspired to take ownership and responsibility and act in line with the future reality that Israel would be a light to the world and many nations would come to him and ultimately all will bow the knee to God. He was compelled by that vision that all will bow the knee to God one day. And that it's not okay that we sit here like this right now. And so he takes responsibility. And in verse 6, he says, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. He has this compelling vision because of a biblical conviction. God is absolutely worthy and supreme. That God is truly the sovereign king who is powerful to act. And I've got one of these Apparently I'm meant to poke at now and again. There's a biblical conviction that God is truly the sovereign king who is powerful to act. So he says, Come, let's go. Let's go. With Jonathan, he hates what has grown up around Israel in the absence of good, godly leadership. And like him, we have to learn to hate what is broken. See, just as an aside, Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus snorted with rage as he cried at the alien intruder of death into his beautiful world. See, God hates. It's part of the fuel of love. And we're inspired to, like Jonathan, to see something wrong and to hate the fact that it exists And to do something about it. And so for where we sit in this world, in this time, in our city, in our towns and villages. Like Jonathan could look at Israel and go, this is just a shadow of the nation that it should be. That it should be this beautiful illustration of God's wisdom and invitation. And it's not. He responds by taking responsibility and acting towards taking it in line. Maybe for you it's hating the expression of Christianity that is so lukewarm and lacking power. Or maybe it's that legalism or license is dominating where you see. Where is grace and mercy? It might be the distortion of God or the fact that many think that they are rejecting God when in fact they are just rejecting a distorted vision of him that we've projected him over the years. Maybe it's that you... Hate that your town is adrift from God pursuing other gods, that sin, death and the enemy seem to be having a field day amongst the people around us. Maybe it's that you'd hate that sin is a tyrant, humanity is a victim. Convinced that God is so much better than all of those pleasures. Maybe you might be motivated to see that there is something worth taking responsibility for and acting in line with. See, I suspect that the vast majority of our towns and villages and cities don't know we exist, that are not conscious of the Christian presence amongst them, that probably don't know that you're there. Unless you're in certain sort of rich areas of sort of Christendom within the UK, I don't imagine our churches, when we all gather together, gather more than 5% of our population on a Sunday. I think... There is a sense that that is not okay, that God is worthy, that God is more wonderful, more beautiful, more powerful, more compelling, more liberating, more satisfying than all of the desires of the world that could be offered to us. And so it's okay that we hate that that is the extent to which the world has been led to believe that those things are more wonderful than being found in God. It might be that we learn to hate what is broken in our environment. Hating that human trafficking exists in your town and that people are trapped and helpless. Hate that people are going to hell without God and you could affect that. Hate that kids are being, that aren't being protected, fed, loved or nurtured. Hate that people are too poor to eat, drink, safe water or turn the heating on. Hate systematic injustice that means that the rich exploit the poor and get richer hate racism and the division of humanity. There are many things for us to be inspired by because of a vision of a beautiful end where God will make everything new. Revelation 21.5 says we know the end of the story. It's that I will make everything new. In Habakkuk 2.14 it says the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. God's glory will fill this earth and he will make everything new. And so we sit in the middle of this story, and we look around us, at brokenness around us, and we go, that is not okay. Like Jonathan looked at the situation in front of him and said, that's not okay. My dad's sitting there with 600 people under a pomegranate tree, and he don't see me doing anything about that. I'm going to get up off my backside, and I'm going to take a risk, and I'm going to do something about this. He chooses to live in line with God's plan. God's vision, God's promised outcome, he chose to take responsibility for it. He chose to to see it come into reality through his own acts of obedience and faith in the context of great risk. And I would just say to us, before we just pause, you are not to become civilised and domesticated followers of Jesus. Safe, tidy, neat, convenient and comfort. That is not our remit. That is not what we're allowed to do. We need to stir up some, hear me correctly, godly godly hatred in the name of Jesus and see where it leads you. You might feel outgunned, just like Israel was outgunned numerically and technologically. You might look at this situation you find yourself in and go, how on earth are we going to follow God and and lead into that context and see the transformation? You might feel outgunned. You really should at times. But the reality is you aren't outgunned. You're absolutely walking with God. You are not outgunned. And so grab your pen and paper again and maybe in a sentence just capture what do you want to see changed or redeemed in your village or town or city? What is it that God is provoking you to see and think, I'm giving you a better vision. I'm giving you a better vision of how I want it to be. For us as a church, we, we've given ourselves to a few things. One of them is that we want to see any child that needs to ha- a home, that you have a home. It feels like, it, well, we know it's a scriptural mandate. That God will put the lonely in homes. he loves the widows and the orphans. He knows how to love them. And so we heavily emphasise and champion and support adoption and fostering. But um, whenever I drive to London, I drive past fleet services. And I know that that is a hub of human trafficking. And I pop and get a coffee. And I think, I can't drive past that and not imagine us attacking that and tackling it and seeing it shifted, there are things in your town, in your city, in your village, that are God's heart breaks over. And he wants you to catch his heart and to say, I want to see something happen. I feel entirely outgunned. If we enter into human trafficking, we probably have to enter into a whole world of crime and gang culture, and and organized crime, and you think, how does the church change that? Well, not by outgunning them, but we might outpray them, and we might see something shift in the miracles, to see something happen. But God would have you not be civilized, not be domesticated, but caught with a vision, and hate what is out of line with the the will of God, And to take responsibility and to act. So Jonathan had a vision. He was compelled by a vision. Second, I would say, it was nurtured by a Christ-like culture. See, faith thrives in a healthy leader. In 14 verse 7, Jonathan invites the armour-bearer to follow him into... Almost certain death. And he says to him, do all that you have in mind. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. There's a powerfully strong bond of trust between these two. Jonathan and his armor bearer. They were pioneering into uncertain territory with a massive risk to their own lives. But, and faith thrives in an atmosphere of healthy, humble leadership. See, I'm a massive advocate for vision-driven leadership and strategy. I love those things, but I'm convinced that culture is the key element. If we're to lead prophetically, if we're to lead well, we're to lead with a a vision and we're to lead with life-giving qualities and we're to lead in step with the Spirit and we're to do that healthily over the long haul. Culture is a key element. I think it's the difference maker. It's what will enable us or prevent us from reaching our vision. See, many think that to grow our impact or to achieve that idea of what God is calling us to do, we need to adopt models from different churches that are thriving in that way or the other. But what we actually need is an all-pervasive, healthy, Christ-like culture. Put it another way, vision is the wow The mission statement is the how, and the culture is the now. It's The vision is... God has the compelling vision for us. The mission is the steps we'll take to get there. But the culture is who we are today as we walk towards that journey. As we go somewhere, it's the quality of who we are. I think with great conviction, our success will not come from having the slickest strategy, the branding, the programming, or even the best preaching. It will come from God-honoring, Christ-reflecting culture that is healthy, able to feed and nurture the outsider, the youngest believer, and the salty salty old sea dogs of the Christian faith. We as leaders hold a large responsibility for how we nurture and equip by creating the right environment, the right culture, there must have been something really powerful and healthy and good and wonderful about how Jonathan led, that the armour bearer said, I am with you, heart and soul. He was with him, heart and soul, into face on into risk, into imminent danger. We need to genuinely embody a Christ-like culture, personify it, celebrate it, replicate it in others, and culture emanates from leadership. So the thing that you're leading, you're setting the tone, you're setting the culture, you're setting the behavioural patterns and norms in the space that you lead. Are they Christ-like? Are they like jesus Because you have the power to create a healthy, life-giving environment that will enable your ministry, your small group, your church to reach for what that vision is that God has put in front of you. The great philosopher Richard Branson says this, there is no magic formula for creating a great culture. The key is just to treat each other like you would like to be treated. Or someone else quite famous said this, so in everything... Do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus would say to us, how you love one another really, really matters. And so if you're not secure in who you are and your identity in Christ, then you're going to struggle to build that healthy culture. You're going to struggle because you yourself fundamentally are not healthy. See, the culture we're building should reflect the culture of God's kingdom, the ideas, the customs, the behaviors of heaven. And we should be aiming to build whatever it is we're building so that it's in keeping. So that when Jesus returns and he turns up at the thing that you've been loving and leading, and ideally he goes, No change required. You were doing it already. We're aiming to build so that when Jesus returns, the least amount of our culture needs to change to conform to be like his. If you want a summation of it, I would say Galatians 5 is a wonderful place to go. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. That's the nature and the personality of God. That's who he is. He never changes. It's the fruit of the spirit born in us. And so we need to fight for a healthy culture. Because the easiest way for us to lose the ability to lead prophetically and lead well and lead over the long haul is to lose a healthy Christ-like culture and become well, to sacrifice it on the altar of, of growth and success and convenience and speed and haste. We can lose it so, so quickly. See, very few churches or ministries ever transition from small to medium. Not with their culture intact. Because they jettison it on the way for growth. I think the quicker way is this way. So we'll lose who we are to get there. Culture underpins everything we do, and we need to strive for it, we need to fight for it. And I would just say this, integrity is key to building a healthy culture. It's really important. Your culture is your DNA, it's your moral compass, it's what you do when you think no one's watching. And this is where the opportunity is, actually, because there's always someone watching. And I'm not talking always about God, although, yes, he is always watching, but someone is always watching what you're doing. And it's a chance for us to live up to who we've been called to be. Live with integrity. Build credibility. You cannot afford for there to be any difference between the internal culture of your leadership team. Whether that's the eldership team, the office that you work in, the serving teams that you serve alongside. There cannot be anywhere that, is a, that appears to be behind, be behind the curtain. Anything that has any difference from the external, front-facing experience for the church, the guest, or the town. When someone walks into your church, there should not be this wonderful, welcoming, warm environment. And then behind the curtain where you were in the staff team, the discord, disunity, uh, false harmony, bitterness, gossip, rage, slander, all the other bits and pieces. Those, there cannot be a disconnect. It has to be that there is integrity, no difference between the internal and the external culture. It should be that the healthiest churches have no no gap, no disconnect. They have integrity between what they say and what they live out. So your culture is your compass. It's a guide to you and keeps you on course and holds you to account. So I think vision is really important. Culture is really important. And the the third where I think it really seems to start living out the hard work of those two things we see now really lived out in this story. Are there any questions before I just press in? So the third thing I think is really important is to break the line, which we see with Jonathan. He's, he moves from sitting there observing that the Philistine camper on top of him. He breaks the line and says, come, let's go. He breaks the line. To have faith to break the line, you have to be in step with the Spirit. And this is where I really feel like it it starts to live out in us. That to lead prophetically means we have to be in in a relationship with him of intimacy and dialogue and obedience. Churchill's getting quoted again today. Courage is the most essential of all leadership qualities as it is one that ensures all the others. I actually disagree with that, even though I've just said it. But courage is the most essential of all leadership qualities as it is the one that ensures all the others. I would actually say humility is, but he makes a decent point. You need courage. You need humility, but you need courage because it ensures their other leadership qualities go with it. Now, this is the challenge for me. Jonathan didn't demand of God the whole plan before he said he would act for him. He followed him step by step. We'll see this as it rolls out. Verse 1 of 14. Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost over there. He's really a little bit vague at this point. He's just saying, let's just push a door. Let's just see. In other words, it's not clear yet what the plan is, but let's have a go, see what happens. And the amount of times that I've ventured out Knowing that I should do something, I don't even know quite where it's going or what it's going to result in, but knowing that it's what I'm meant to have a go at. Most of what I do most of the time. Especially when you're doing something for the first time. When you're venturing out into the first time to do something. We cannot demand of God the full plan before we go ahead. Because that's not really a particularly trusting or obedient way of living. It's saying, I want to know everything before we go. I need to assess this for myself. It kind of puts us at the centre and says, we'll be judged of whether this is going to work and whether I'm going to risk it. In verse 5, it says, On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Senna. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash and the other south towards Geba. Now, when we follow God step by step, And we don't have the whole plan in front of us. We take a step. Like him, we take a step initially. But we see here that new strategies were found en route. There was a path between the cliffs that became apparent after he'd started out. You might start thinking, I know that God's telling me to go in that direction. But I don't know really how to get there. I don't know what the route is. I don't know how to get there. I don't even know what the end destination is exactly. The amount of times that you'll start something or you'll be leading into the unknown or into the ministry, we're doing what's impossible. We're going to find ourselves walking with God in such a way that He reveals strategy along the way. He revealed it for Jonathan. They didn't know that there was a path that cut between the two cliffs that would lead them to pop up just where He needed to pop up so that He could provoke the Philistines but as he took some steps in the right direction the path became clear god knows how to lead you and give you new strategies as you go forward it requires us to take that first step though verse 6 come let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men perhaps the lord will act on our behalf because nothing can hinder the lord from saving whether by many or by few jonathan having taken a step in the right direction became more and more certain and bold You'll find as you follow him and take that first step, already agreeing, God, you can tell me to go and I'll go, and I don't demand the whole picture before I go. And then you start to take some steps. You'll find strategies opening up and and ways and means of navigating the, the circumstances in front of you. But you'll also start finding courage building, boldness building, as you sense God walking with you. It's One of the most impactful areas of your spiritual growth is to go out of your depth. And to find that God is with you in that space. Too often we're really wanting to just paddle around ankle deep. But he's asking us to go out of our depth. God guided him. And he boldly trusted him. See, fear isn't a problem. Because leaders all experience fear. But courage won't let fear dominate you. And the secret to being courageous is to have one great fear vertically that overcomes all horizontal fears. See, Jonathan loved God and he feared him rightly and righteously. More than he feared the Philistines, who he was appropriately afraid of because they had numbers and weapons and that they were motivated to harm him. But he had a vertical fear that overcame, overcame his uh, horizontal fear. He grows in boldness as he trusts him. Verses 8 to 10, Jonathan said, come on, let's go over. We'll cross over to the other side towards them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait until you, we come to you, we will stay there and we will not go up to them. But if we go to them... And they say, come on up to us. We will climb up because we will see that that is our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. We see here he is discerning the voice and the will of God and that it is done in community. I know I'm stretching that because there's two people in that space. But it is them in community working out and discerning the voice and the will of God. They're saying, well, let's take a step. Let's see. Let's go. In 1 Corinthians 14 verse 29, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. So you see this Jonathan the armor bearer in step with God. Taking one step and then another and then another. Metaphorically and literally. Verse 12, the men of the outpost shouted at Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on up, we'll teach you a lesson. And they climb up because they know. And so what had been their opposition became the opportunity that they were now in f- standing in front of a God opportunity that looked like opposition, but really it was the breakthrough that they were seeking. It's so important that you seek God for a vision for what you've been given responsibility for that is so great that it's impossible to achieve. It's not enough that you look at what you're doing and go, and I can achieve that on a f- couple hours' work and a bit of prayer and It should be so great and so impossible for you within your context and within your resources and means and your experience that you would go, that is not happening. (laughs) That is not happening without God. It should be a vision that you pursue that was destined to fail without God. Do you remember what I was saying at the beginning? There's no other way to be a Christian leader than to be led prophetically. We are not open to being led by God. We follow him in a matter of dialogue and obedience and intimacy. The very thing that we are doing intrinsically at its very core is impossible. We can't achieve these things ourselves. He wants us to be caught up with a vision that is impossible. And I think we put brakes on our ability to imagine what God would do with us because of our own insecurities, our own sense of Uh, limitation, history, past, disappointment. I understand it all. I live with it and feel it. He would sometimes say to you, come on, let's take the brakes off of whatever it is that is causing you to say, no, you can't do that, God. As soon as you kind of realize that, you go, yeah, sorry, I am actually putting myself at the center of this. I'm saying that can't be done. But we know that actually God wants to bring about something impossible he wants us to ga- grab hold of that created mandate. He wants us to see that it's urgent and he wants to partner with you. I think, uh, just as we sort of move towards the end, I think the biggest enemy of your and mine ability to lead with courage and to lead in that step with God. It's probably our own reputation. It's probably my reputation. It's probably your reputation. Because imagine how unstoppable you'd be if you, th- you knew you couldn't lose. You'd pick up your cross and you'd follow him. Follow him into anything. And so often I don't do something because I'm afraid it's going to fail and it's going to look bad on me. And God loves and honours obedience and humility... But never forget the victory is his. And so, 13 through to 15, he climbs up on his hands and feet with the armor bearer right behind him, and they lay waste to the people in front of them. Faith to break the line creates momentum moments. They kill 20, but really, God turns this whole thing on its head in that moment of breaking the line. There is leading, and then there is leading, and often the prophetic will be involved. Because leadership creates what doesn't exist yet, and you need to know that you've heard from God when you go into these things. And every now and again, there's going to be moments as a leader that as you spot them and you seize them, you find the victory. Maybe it's every six months, maybe it's more, maybe it's less, but you'll find yourself in context where you think, this is the moment. This is the moment that we need to go. We've got to go for it now. When I look back, there have been moments that I've spotted. And I'm sure there's many more I've missed. But I would think moments where we have seized the moment. We've followed the leading. We've broken the line. We've gone for something. I think it's probably things like asking Ed to join the staff team when he's been courted about going to San Francisco and earning shed loads more money with an office over San Francisco Bay. And I said to him, you can be an evangelist up to a point, but after a while your work will create a cap on your capacity to lead. And I think your gift is too big. It will shape a whole church. It will shape a whole movement. I I think you need to consider whether you need to stop working, for them and start working for us. And he felt God speak to him. It feels like a, a conversation I had with my friend Michael about moving to Andover and starting a church there. It feels like a moment when faith to break the line when we saw a building that was far too expensive for us and we still haven't got it renovated yet four years later, but we are within touching distance of that because then suddenly we get a home and we stop having to do pop-up church all the time which is life-sucking might be when i spoke to a couple about moving from london to till basingstoke to plant a church in north africa might be uh, any number of moments within the life of this church that we would say that was a moment that god gave us faith to break the line and go do something and so you'll have situations in front of you again and again. God will grant you moments. But how do you spot them? Let me quickly wrap them up. How do you spot these moments? They're not You won't be surprised. Be prayerful and stay tuned in. <laughs> be prayerful and stay tuned in. I don't know how you do that. I go for a walk. I go for a long two-hour walk, and I just sift and filter and pray and think. And I find I really tune into the heart of God. Cultivate the prophetic, whether it's in your life or those around you. I'm mildly prophetic. I work with and have a great friendship with a guy who's very prophetic. And so I work with and walk with him a lot and ask him lots of questions and lean into his gifting and, and... And so you might find others around you have a stronger prophetic gift. Lean into them, ask them to pray with you, for you. Thirdly, stay in step with the Spirit. Be asking Him to give you the wisdom and the insight and the faith to see and spot the moments. Fourthly, I would say stay rested. Don't be overtired, and you will be better off. Feed your soul. Like I was saying, maybe it's good music, good food, walks in the countryside. For me, that's massive. But when I'm rested, I find I hear from God. Don't know if you ever go on a holiday and suddenly you feel like God's speaking again. It's like, no, he's always been speaking. It's just that you've been to- too knackered and exi- exhausted to really be tuned in. Next, if you're stuck, get other people to come into your situation and dig around. Help them ask, Give them permission to ask God, what opportunities are we missing? And finally, just ask God for an instinct for it. Eyes to see God at work. Because this is a matter of intimacy. This is a matter of him leading you. To see the, the opportunity, the faith to break the line. And so just as we close. Can you spot any moments right now? That you've either just missed or you should be about to take. Where you think that's a risk worth taking. That is something that God is calling me to do. That is something that he's asking me to make a decision about and say, yes, I'll do that. Because if you've just missed an opportunity, he's incredibly gracious and loves to give more opportunities. But sometimes hindsight is our best way of seeing and learning. So just take a moment and write down. Maybe... You can spot, but what is it that he's asking you to do? G.K. Beale says this in his book, Temple and the Church's Mission. He says, God's ultimate goal in creation was to magnify his glory throughout the earth by the means of his faithful image bearers, you and me, inhabiting the world in obedience to the divine mandate. You've been given the dignity of a divine mandate that needs living out. And he wants you to live in step and walk in step with him into that. Lord Jesus, we just want to just ask that you would speak to us. Lord God, as we've looked at the life of Jonathan the Armour Bearer, we've looked at that moment of faith. Lord Jesus, I just pray, would you install in us a God-given vision for the air of responsibility that we've been given. Rise in us a desire to see what is out of line brought back into line. With a desire and an energy to see it through, Lord, I pray that you would put in us a healthy Christ-like ability to love and lead so that it nurtures others around us into thriving. And Lord, I just pray, would you enable us to walk in step with you so that we've got faith for those moments that you put in front of us that feel frightening and overwhelming and feel like we're outgunned and how could we go into that? But Lord, that you would give us faith to go for it anyway, not, not demanding that you give us the full plan before we go. Lord, I pray for unconditional obedience in our hearts, Amen. unconditional desire to love you, unconditional pursuit of you. And so, Lord, I help us to tune into your heart. We don't come to you because we want something from you. We want you. And you haven't given us a sentimental, comfortable role of just sitting on the sidelines watching you at a distance. You've asked us to join the family business. And so I pray, would we do what you ask us to do for your glory and the good of humanity. Amen. Amen.